Propaganda is the use of politically biased information to manipulate or influence the opinions and actions of individuals and society on the whole. Propaganda has evolved over the past 100 plus years through the vehicles of communication with which it is dispersed, from print to radio, the movies and television, and now the internet. But with the rise of social media over the past decade and the subsequent implementation of bots, we've also seen a powerful shift in the structure, influence, and individuals responsible for propaganda, resulting in everything from time-wasting and soul-sucking online engagements for individuals to determining the outcomes of presidential elections across the globe. But who is responsible for this new style of propaganda? Why do people spread it? What is its ultimate effect? And how do we combat it going forward? Samuel Woolley, a journalism and media professor and director of the Propaganda Research Lab at the University of Texas at Austin, attempts to answer these questions and more with his new book, Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. Sam, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing really well, doing great. Glad to hear it, and it's my pleasure. So what was your goal with Manufacturing Consensus? My goal with Manufacturing Consensus was to write a book that was about digital propaganda and disinformation, but grounded in the theory and ideas uh, and, and research that's been done on propaganda for years and years. So, you know, for about a decade now, I've been studying propaganda in various forms, particularly what I call and my, my colleagues and collaborators call computational propaganda. And so this was my chance to take a deep dive into the work done by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky and, and uh, Bernays and Jacques Ellul and all these people that have been working on propaganda for a very long time, um, but that haven't been worked into a lot of the contemporary conversations about propaganda. So my big question was, what can I learn from them? Um, and also, what can I show from, from the 10 years of, or so of work that I've done in the field amongst propagandists and people working to fight propaganda? Uh, what can I show and, and what can I tell both to an academic audience, but also you know, to a much broader public audience too. I enjoyed your definition of traditional propaganda so much so that I actually used it in my intro. Propaganda is the use of politically biased information to manipulate or influence the opinions and actions of individuals and society on the whole. Interestingly, though, in a brief exploration that you do in the history of traditional propaganda, it wasn't always necessarily uh, this nefarious thing to begin with. So uh, where did this term and this idea and uh, the output originally come from and uh, what was its initial intent? Yeah, uh, so I was surprised to learn about this myself. Propaganda as a term is derived from something called the Office of the Propagation of Faith in the Catholic Church. And it was originally thought of as related to the evangelism that the Catholic Church was doing in the New World. So propagating, spreading this kind of uh, gardening or, or agricultural metaphor for spreading religion in the New World. It was thought of as a, as a benevolent practice by people in the church, not as being a, a purposeful attempt to manipulate folks. Um, it was rooted in faith. It was rooted in religion. Obviously, people will will have a variety of perspectives about that work that was done. And obviously, there's a lot of atrocities committed during that time and a lot of slavery, and that all needs to be mentioned. But uh, originally, this idea of propagation was tied deeply tied to the spread of the of the of the Catholic Church and of Catholicism. It wasn't until uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that people really began to see this idea of propaganda more more negatively. Up until then, it was seen as kind of you know a general term, um, not good, not bad. It wasn't until World War One that people really began to use this idea of propaganda as a derisive term. After the First World War, people were really tired of the Allies' uh, work spreading pro-war propaganda, trying to get people to join. They were also obviously very tired of, of uh, their adversaries' efforts to do that as well, to, to manipulate public opinion. And there was a huge backlash against propaganda. At that exact same time, people like uh, Bernays, who is the nephew of Sigmund Freud, were writing books in support of the need for propaganda. Uh, also, uh, Walter Lippmann, one of the most famous uh, intellectuals of the 20th century, they were writing that in a democracy, we need propaganda to basically keep people in line, 
to let um, let the and this is my words, not them, but you know, let the adults run the government and let the rest of the people kind of be uh, passively be passive, be controlled through information operations. And so it sounds pretty bad because it is pretty bad, but there was this perception that, you know, is in line with things that folks like Winston Churchill have said that the best argument against democracy is to talk to the average voter for five minutes. Um, and so people like Bernays and Alul argued very much so that broadcast media that newspapers, radio, television should be used to manipulate public opinion so that the government could get along and do its job. Um, and obviously, over the last 100 or so years since that time, uh, propaganda has morphed a lot of different ways, in particular because of the Cold War and Russia's uh, refinement of what we call active measures. And then to today, propaganda has changed almost to the degree that it's hard to recognize in the digital sphere. And that's what this book is about. So I was familiar with Lippmann and uh, Edward Bernays. Fuck that guy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> read your book. Uh, he's, on, he's on that list with uh, Arthur Sackler for me, for people who have uh, just done uh, just a, a terrible job and uh, directing society in a bad direction. And then Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. And then also, uh, also Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky, of course, and uh, your title is a play on words from their excellent book from the late 1980s, Manufacturing Consent. I was unfamiliar with Jacques, uh, Elul, though, before reading this book. So who exactly is he and why is he maybe as heavy an influence on the book that you wrote as any of these other propaganda scholars? Great question. So Jacques Elul uh, was a French thinker, uh, philosopher, intellectual, working around the middle of the 20th century, particularly in the 60s and 70s. An especially important thinker to me because he took a much broader view of understanding propaganda. Uh Folks like Lippmann and Bernays and many of the early um, psychologists and social scientists who were working on the study of propaganda back in the 1920s, 30s, and et cetera, they were doing a lot of lab experiments. They were trying to study propaganda in a vacuum. They were trying to recreate propaganda in order to understand what its effects and implications were. Then you had this guy Jacques Ellul come along uh, in, you know, in the 50s, 60s and start saying, hey, like propaganda is a sociological phenomenon. It pervades society. It's really driven by the type of technology that gets used to push it. Uh, and so propaganda and technology are inextricable, but also all these attempts to recreate propaganda in a lab and to claim that you can determine primary effects are pretty bogus because each group of people that experiences propaganda experiences it differently. They experience it differently in terms of the, the language they speak, the culture that they're a part of, the subculture they're a part of, or where they where they live. So Alul was making this argument that we need to take a broader view of propaganda. We need to try to understand it more through theory, through qualitative methods, through talking to people. And rather than attempting to make these big general sweeping statements about the benefits in the case of Bernays and Lippmann of propaganda or the the harms of propaganda at a big general level, we need to think about how specific groups of people are particularly affected. And so in my own work, that's led to a specific focus on how marginalized communities, uh, how journalists, how women, how these kinds of groups are affected by propaganda because it's, it's uh, easier to get at some kind of ground truth about those those groups experience than it is to say, talk about how the whole United States has been affected by, say, Russian propaganda during different elections. Yeah, and propaganda is so tricky in part because of what you point out, that it's very difficult to quantify. And that becomes even more muddled when you're talking about computational propaganda, which obviously you mentioned a couple answers ago. So let's get back into that now, since that is the focus of this book. Uh, to, just to explain one more time, what exactly is computational propaganda and how is it much more concerning than the traditional propaganda that we became accustomed to up until the last 10 to 15 years or so? Sure. Uh, computational propaganda is an idea and a term that, that my colleague Phil Howard and I came up with in around 2012, 2013. We were working at the University of Washington at the time, and Phil had been spending time studying the Arab Spring and the ways that people in Syria, Egypt, Tunisia, etc., were using the internet and in social media in particular to push for democracy in those places, so to organize, to communicate using YouTube, Facebook, etc. 
At the same time, Phil and I had been having these conversations about the fact that there, and many other scholars too, some some folks like Jillian York, uh, who's a legal scholar and, and others, we're saying, hey, listen, there's also a lot of co-option in this space. Um, the Assad regime, many of these regimes across the Middle East and North Africa are using social media to try to manipulate people, to try to shut people up, to try to shut conversation down, to push spam, to like jam up channels of communication by co-opting hashtags and, and then just like generating tons of garbage so no one could find conversations going on. And it looks like, you know, a new form of propaganda in a lot of ways. It's a new way of doing it. And specifically, the reason why we thought it was new and why it's different than past propaganda is that a heck of a lot of it was automated. So bots were pushing a ton of this stuff. People were scaling and amplifying their efforts by using thousands, tens of thousands of bots to co-opt hashtags. And so you think of one person being powerful or a group of 10 coordinated people being powerful on social media, depending on how many followers they have, depending how engaged they are, how good their content is. But then when you bring bots into the into the mix, not only are you able to amplify the amount of likes, retweets, engagement that you're getting, uh, you're also able to attack particular people, journalists, with barrages of, of junk and harassment. And, you know, listeners might be thinking, well, like, how is that different? You know, or, or you know, I wouldn't listen to a bot. A bot wouldn't scare me. Oftentimes with computational propaganda, the, the thing we zeroed in on is that oftentimes the goal is for the bots and the sock puppets and the fake accounts to communicate with the algorithm, to give the illusion of quantity of content and engagement so that the trending algorithm, the recommendation algorithm on social media platforms and elsewhere, pick it up, regurgitate it and launder that propaganda so that it then gets picked up by regular people. There's kind of a bandwagon effect. And that's why I talk about this idea of manufacturing consensus that you know, what computational propagandists try to do is create the illusion of popularity or the illusion of of anger and uh, of dissent in particular spaces in order to then create a bandwagon effect and get popular support. And so oftentimes that's where that spread of disinformation, the purposeful spread of false content morphs into misinformation, the accidental spread. That's the goal of the propagandist many times. And so computational propaganda is all about automation. It's all about algorithms and social media. And our basic premise there is that propaganda in the digital age is on steroids. It's 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 the breadth is much deeper, but also the use of sophisticated sets of data are allowing propaganda to be much more targeted. Um, not exactly at individuals, unless you're targeting a specific person, but especially at groups and small groups. So a lot of people may be mistaken in thinking that it's easy to spot bots. Now, it may have been five, 10 years ago, but it's gotten so complex that one of the roles of bots is to imitate humans, to make it seem like you are speaking with a human on the other end of whatever other computer that uh, that message is being tweeted or put out from. But that is not the case nearly as much now. But ultimately, who is responsible for a lot of these bots, Sam? Look, like bots have existed on social media and on the internet since these things came about, since they were publicly launched. And so really it's the social media companies and it's 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 the people who provide these frameworks that are most responsible. Also, obviously the people who build these bots have a lot of responsibility when it comes to launching bots and letting them do whatever. But bots have also become something of a digital boogeyman man in our in our society. There was actually a Wall Street Journal article that used some kind of uh, that word in the title talking about bots a while back. Not all bots are bad. There's lots of good bots out there. Bots get used to do any automated task online. Uh, and so even on social media, there's bots that generate art or comedy. There was a famous one back in 2016 that was called Deep Drump that like took a bunch of Trump uh, scripts from his speeches and then mimicked Trump's style of speaking, which was actually really funny because, you know, the guy has a really specific style of speaking. But all of those bots oftentimes get, you know, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. Like you have all the good bots get thrown out with the bad bots when there's attempts to delete, especially the more clunky ones out there. Now, you're absolutely right to point out the fact that bots have become more sophisticated over time. In fact, my colleague, Nick Monaco, who's at Microsoft now, uh, works with Clint Watts, another disinformation researcher. And I, we wrote a book called Bots last year for Polity Press. And it was I was writing at the same exact time I was writing Manufacturing Consensus. 
And in that book, we talk about specifically about AI, machine learning, deep learning, and the ways in which these things are being used to build more sophisticated bots. And as far back as 10 years ago, when I started doing this stuff, we were worried then about what innovations in AI and machine learning, specifically in places also like uh, natural language processing, how that would result in more sophisticated bots that could could mimic people, mimic real people. And now y'all, you, you know, we are all seeing chat GPT three and four, Dali, these kinds of bots, uh, functionally bots, chat bots that are being launched to the public. Um, right now, mostly it's, it's, it's a process of asking them questions or giving them a prompt to do something. But, uh, you know, we're already seeing in the propaganda space that kind of technology getting turned around to produce content that is aimed at people and the people don't know that, that they're dealing with bots. And so in the next five to 10 years, even the next two to five years, I would say, we're going to start seeing a lot more sophistication in the bot space and people's perception that somehow bots aren't a problem anymore or that the use of bots, you know, is no longer the thing in propaganda. They're wrong because uh, the technology is catching up. It's becoming more ubiquitous. It's also becoming cheaper to run. Uh, and as that continues to happen, it'll become more available to folks. I was feeling your pain throughout reading this book. As you mentioned, this book was eight years in the making, but this technology is evolving so quickly. Inevitably, there's going to be something that's coming out as you're putting out and then promoting this book that you weren't able to get to because it wasn't quite there just yet. Yeah, was, yeah. was there a reluctance on your part to uh, to turn that final uh, edition into the publisher because you knew inevitably <sighs> you'd be missing something within three to six months? It's so always the case. About, you just talked <laughs> about that GPT, and that's obviously one of the first questions that you're probably having to talk about when you discuss this book. Yeah, look, like it's always been the 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 curse of doing research on emerging technology and, and political manipulation and commercial manipulation. Um uh, that something new is happening. And so when I, I turned in the draft, you know, well over a year, the last draft, well over a year ago, we went through, we went through final copy edits a long time ago. There wasn't conversation going on about these, these about chat GPT, like there is today. You know, of course, in the book, I talk about machine learning and, and, and uh, the, the impacts that it can have on bots and the ways in which different well-resourced actors have been already been able to use machine learning bots to manipulate public opinion, but yeah, you know, like it's constantly a moving target, but it's the nature of the beast. And, and it speaks to the fact that we, that, that our policymakers um, and the, the other people that are working to not just regulate, but to fight back against this stuff have to be savvy and have to be up to date with the most, the newest technology, because, because we can't keep fighting yesterday's war. I feel like so many people are still stuck in 2016 and they're like, we need to be responding to all that. And I'm like, Hey, we're, you know, nearly 10 years past that. Now um, we need to be doing other things. Yeah, no doubt about that. And we're actually not really going to touch on 2016, although you do talk about it in this book because there is so much that has happened since then. And you do put most of your focus in terms of the effect of uh, of this computational propaganda on four different countries and what has happened politically in those countries. The U.S., of course, with 2016 and then also 2020 to a lesser degree, the U.K., Turkey and Ecuador. But you do point out that by 2019, 70 different countries had engaged in computational propaganda, uh, a.k.a. state-sponsored trolling. I love that term. But why are Facebook and Reddit so popular for governmental computational propaganda, Sam? Mm, great question. So as with any new technology, whether it's the printing press or the radio or the newspaper, uh, people in positions of power, governments, uh, other well-resourced groups are going to co-opt the technology and try to use it to control people, whether it's to try to get them to buy stuff, uh, buy actual products, or to buy into a particular political perspective, or just to get angry and pissed off so they don't engage with particular things you know, elite actors, the 1%, so to speak, they're going to do this. And the same thing has been true with social media. Social media is also a fascinating tool for control because oftentimes it allows for anonymity. Um, and in the past, it was really hard to keep propagandists anonymous. You could hire people to stand in the crowd and cheer for your speech, or you could, uh, you could, put in paid content on the radio and things like that. But the, it was easier for a journalist or for a researcher like me to track it down. Now on the internet, states have realized that they can sow 
manipulation, influence, harassment, targeted hate, all of these sorts of things at both foreign adversaries, but also potentially at their own citizens, some of the oftentimes, without ever really getting caught. Uh, and so that's why anonymity is a big part of this. Also, they can reach far more people than before. It bears saying that that propaganda on social media at present is not as fine-tuned an instrument as the kind of propaganda that we saw on, we still see on television, uh, in film, um, in other spaces. Uh, and that's because social media is a many-to-many -many, uh, content creation ecosystem. All of us are building and creating content. And that means that, you know, you don't have the one-to-many like channel just to, to passively pass them the content. That being said, it does play into the hands of people who understand active measures, uh, things like hypernormalization, some of these Soviet terms that are all about, rather than persuading people to vote for one politician or another, actually trying to make people pissed off, disenchanted, apathetic, uh, polarized, so that they don't engage with uh, politics, so that they become distrustful of institutions in order to degrade democracy. Yeah, that apathy that's created, in, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's more dangerous than the ability to influence an election one way or another. Because when you are creating apathy, you are creating a society of people who doesn't really care one way or the other. And at that point, things become that much more pliable. That's such a good point. You know, like we're oftentimes so short sighted in how we think about propaganda. And that's one of the things I, I talk about in this book. We think about one election. We think about nations, uh, one nation state as an adversary. And the reality of propaganda today is because of that apathy issue, it's a long-term game. The goal is long-term degradation of, of the democratic space. And, and the USSR and then Russia have been playing this game in the United States for a very long time now, since the, the 50s. Um, the internet has allowed Russia to massively advance their efforts, but many people access the active measures playbook that was created by the Kremlin. And so now it's not just nation states like Russia or China or, you know, indeed Iran, the US, like UK power players around the world that are engaging in sophisticated propaganda campaigns. I talk about this idea in my book of like the democratization of propaganda, this idea that suddenly almost anyone can create a propaganda campaign on social media and can use bots or sock puppets or pay groups of influencers to spread propaganda uh, in a way like never before. And of course, you know, that comes with the caveat that most regular folks and, and smaller groups don't have the amount of money that a state has. But there's something to be said for using nimble tactics, kind of like guerrilla warfare online to spread this stuff versus like broad, bloated, bureaucratic strategy that oftentimes we see states states engaging in. You're reading my mind because I was about to ask you about the democratization of propaganda, but you actually state the case that it's not necessarily a good thing for democracy itself. Why? I think that it creates a lot more noise. Um, I think that it plays into the hands of, of powerful actors that are trying to leverage active measures to create more distrust in the political system. Like, you know, at the root of this is things like uh, representative democracy and, and participation uh, and, and how, you know, in many people's minds, it's the best bad political system we have. Like, yes, it's it's bureaucratic. It can result in government overreach. It can be it can be um, unwieldy. It can it can take a long time to get things done, but it it works a heck of a lot better for the benefit of citizens than authoritarianism that we see playing out in countries like China or uh, North Korea or Iran. And so, you know, consolidation of power occurs because people get really good at, at propaganda and because people slide away from democracy and they somehow convince people that in order to to have a easier time to not have to deal with all the voting um to to not have to deal with quote unquote elites and the elite media that they should give more power to to fewer people and so that's why we see a lot of this democratic black backsliding we see the rise of illiberalism from places like Hungary, to the Philippines, Turkey, Brazil, India, to the United States. Um, and people have to be really careful because they're, they're being duped a lot of the time. They're being tricked into supporting these political strongmen. And they're being told that these people represent the populace through these massive populist messages. 
and xenophobic messages. But in reality, these folks are just hungry for power and they're hungry for control. And propaganda and social media have been their means to getting there. And, and this democratization of propaganda really plays into their hands. Very well said there. Now, we do need to spend some additional time on the role of the social media companies with computational propaganda. But let's start out with a, more of a general topic, I guess, because in principle, these social media companies where that allow an exchange of ideas are good for civil discourse. But why is the, the opposite become the case over time, that civil discourse is less possible via social media? I think there's a number of things at play here. So first, the social media platforms have scaled at a rate that no one really could have foreseen. Um, you know, Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, et cetera, you know, they have more than 2 billion users worldwide. And so we're talking about systems that are completely unwieldy, even for the companies that run them. They, and they don't just exist in one language or in one country. They exist around the world. And so you're dealing with not only uh, a borderless internet where people are interacting with all kinds of different sorts of content online, you're also dealing with tons of different laws, jurisdictions, policies, and these sorts of things playing out. It means that social media has become a really messy space. It's a space where there's a heck of a lot of noise, where it's hard to figure out like what's true, what's false, what's what's real, what's fake. And not just that, it's, it's, it's that uh, the social media companies themselves let themselves scale so quickly they they were hungry for the money obviously they were hungry for the power that came with it but they didn't think a lot about what the repercussions would be uh for scaling their platforms this fast they also didn't think about political co-option or put another way they ignored the fact that these platforms would inevitably be used for control they would inevitably be used for criminal enterprise and all sorts of other things and just grew and tried to ignore that you know, we've had kind of an unfettered online space for a long time globally, uh, you know, and that's different in some countries, China, Vietnam, Singapore, and a number of states talked about in the book, open networks, closed regimes have controlled their internet since day one. Uh, but for, for the rest of us, the internet has been a, a bit of a free for all. Uh, in the United States, um, our government has made a decision not to regulate online communications during elections. And we're seeing the uh, the the fallout of that. So on the one hand, social media companies are very much responsible for allowing their platforms to grow, not building in more fail safes, um, not thinking about the consequences of the things that they were building before they built them, and not learning from history. And then on the other hand, regulators, policymakers, politicians like are are also woefully inadequate. They just haven't done enough to combat the problem. Like, yes, the European Union is taking taking action. Yes, we're seeing more lawsuits crop up. But gosh, like we've been writing about this stuff for 10 years and and like other people have been writing about it even longer. Uh, more should have been done early on. I know that regulation is difficult, but uh, it's important to protect our citizenry and our democracy. Um, free speech is absolutely important, but our right to privacy and our right to safety are also incredibly important too. And so we've got to balance all these things in order to live in the kind of country we live in. You know, that's interesting because we've seen through revelations from the Twitter files and the congressional hearings from uh, the last couple of weeks that even though there wasn't anything being done in terms of putting legal guardrails in place, that efforts were being made to control the flow of information. How have all these different revelations uh, impacted how you think about computational propaganda, the social media companies, and also the government's role in all of this, too? It's an interesting thing because you have these government investigations into like what Twitter and Facebook were doing. But, you know, my point of view on this oftentimes is like the government wasn't doing anything. And so the social media companies were tasked with this thing they never should have been tasked with, which was regulating their own communication systems. From the early days, radio, television, film, newspaper, those things have been regulated by the FCC. There's been conversations about how do we protect kids on in these spaces. There's been a heck of a lot less conversations about those things on social media. And that's a massive problem. And so it's ironic to me to see all these, these revelations going on about, you know, the fact that Facebook and Twitter and all of these folks were doing this work, because I don't believe they really should have been doing it in the first place. I don't believe they should be, have been arbitrating truth. And, you know, some listeners might say no one should arbitrate truth. Uh, but freedom of speech, as one of my colleagues put it on Twitter a while back, Mike Anony, is a lot different than freedom to speak. 
The First Amendment is specific. It's about the protection of journalism. It's about the protection of our right to speak within specific parameters. And everyone knows about the thing. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You also can't spread disinformation about how, when, or where to vote. It's called disenfranchisement. You can't uh, you can't threaten people with death. You can't do those kinds of things in a way that is actually uh, indicative of, of a potential crime, right? And so, so there's specific spaces where there has to be controls. Do I think the social media companies got it right all the time? No, I've been battling with the social media companies for, for the whole time I've been doing this work, right? It makes me laugh. Like, I think that they were woefully inadequate in how they responded to these problems. Um, I, I'm not an apologist for them. I, I think that they've made so many mistakes. I think that they were super slow to act, but I also never envied their position of having to basically create a trust and safety system from scratch and make calls about whether or not to ban presidents and senators and whatnot based upon how they were acting uh, in a very real way to spread false content about the electoral process, like in, in many of these cases. And so, gosh, it's a, it's a mess and it's been a mess, but I would say that, that the platforms are to blame. I would say that politicians are also massively to blame, including some of the ones that sit on some of these panels. Um, and also, you know, regular people, we've got to become more aware of the fact that this space is a messy space and we need to be calling for more action and more change. It's just a colossal mess. It's why I wonder ultimately if these social media companies shouldn't be treated more like public utilities. And I know that I'm not the first person to bring this idea up, but treating it more like a pub public utility does allow the government to come in and, and place certain safeguards and, and certain rules and regulations in place. Yeah, you know, it's definitely something that's come up. Uh, you know, I think another thing that's come up for a lot of people is um, antitrust law and monopoly monopoly conversations, because many of these, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, Alphabet, Meta, et cetera here, Apple, um, which doesn't have social media, but certainly has a, a pretty tight grip on on the production of technology in our world. And I think that all of these things have a place in the conversations uh, about policy regulation, et cetera. I think Democrats and Republicans do a lot of finger pointing in the space when what we need is bipartisan legislation to actually work to think through this stuff. The there has to be new law regulating them. It can't just, in my opinion, it can't just be based on our perception of public utilities like the telephone, because Zuckerberg and others have tried to make this argument that they're just the pipes, that they're that they are the telephone lines, et cetera. But we know that that's not true. And in fact, in my book, what I talk about a lot is the fact that they build recommendation algorithms, trending algorithms. They build these, these bits of code that push us towards certain kinds of content. And in fact, in many cases, push us to be more polarized according to the research. And so, uh, or, you know, they push democratic content to some people, Republican content to others and something else to others. They are not unbiased. They are curating information. They are pushing specific kinds of content. And so undoubtedly, we need some kind of law to think through this and to, and to hold them accountable. But, you know, I think that it's got to be it's got to be novel and it's got to be it's got there's got to be some some new thinking going in. And there's been thinking that has gone in. It wasn't so long ago. I want to remind the listeners it wasn't so long ago that Josh Hawley and Mark Warner, two people that seem now diametrically opposed, were creating legislation together in an attempt to moderate the online world. We need to get back to a place where that's the case. Yeah, checks and balances, as you point out, are crucial for a democracy to work, but it just seems like those checks and balances are completely lacking with social media right now. I think that's absolutely right. Like social media, these 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 companies, social media companies and tech companies have become unthinkably powerful, right? Like we're talking about companies in, in some of these cases that are more powerful than than big oil, which no one ever thought, you know, like would be overtaken by a company like Apple or Alphabet, um, not until recently, at least. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we need more checks and balances on these companies. Um, many times, especially if you're not the United States or China, if you're a smaller country, you're dealing with companies that have uh, a lot more money than you do. Uh, and you, and they are arguably more powerful than you are. When Elon Musk initially floated the idea, and I guess floated the initial offer to buy Twitter, there was a, a big debate that, that arose between Musk and then uh, Twitter, the company, as to just how many bots existed on that platform. There 
uh, I believe their belief was at something like three to 5%. And Musk said that it was something north of 20%. For you as somebody who has studied this as long as you have, is there a way to quantify the percentage of bots that exist on a platform like Twitter? Uh, I don't think Twitter honestly even knows how many bots there are on Twitter for some of the reasons that you and I have discussed. So, and the same goes for many other social media platforms, all other social media platforms. It's because bots have become more sophisticated over time and they're much more difficult to track. And oftentimes the, the mechanisms that we use to determine whether one account is a bot or not, they're built on these binary systems where they say yes or no, or 70% bot or 10% bot. And they miss the fact that uh, that oftentimes nothing stops a person from logging into the bot account through the API or through the front end and doing a little bit of human activity in order to trick the algorithm. And so tracking this stuff is a very imperfect science. Um, uh, we know that there's a lot of bots on Twitter. We know there's a lot of bots on other social media platforms. I think that Musk was right to point out that there's probably more than what Twitter has disclosed to the SEC on Twitter. Uh, I, I think that that Musk was wrong, though, to demonize all bots as being bad somehow or thinking that he could ever get rid of all the bots on social media. Because as I make this point in, in, in Manufacturing Consensus and I made in, in all the other books I've worked on and other articles bots are infrastructural to the internet. Uh, and so there's certain kinds of bots that are bad and there's certain kinds of bots that are good, but most bots fall into the middle category. They're doing kind of more benign stuff on the back end. Um, and so if you get rid of spam, then then great. But spam has been a problem that people like Bill Gates and other great minds have been dealing with for a very long time. And they've realized that it's pretty hard to deal with. Uh, you could look to email for a way that we've dealt with this stuff in the past. Um, but social media is a lot different than that. And so, um, you know, bots are going to keep persisting. Uh, we're not ever really going to know how many exist on platforms. Um, the big thing that I think listeners should know is that bots scare social media companies a lot because they can create fake engagement. And so Musk was right to focus in on that because it could potentially undermine the bottom line of a lot of these companies, uh, you know, if we're able to make causal arguments about the fact that bots engage with advertisements mm -hmm. and create kind of a shell game for the very thing that makes these companies their money. So do you think that his effort to require a subscription for those whose voice, I guess, receives the most amplification is not a futile effort then, that it may actually put a dent in the uh, the negative effect of bots, at least on Twitter? I think that that's supposed to be the idea, but, but we know, I, I I know that propagandists are pragmatists and that they're not afraid to pay to, to, to do what they need to do. And so if you can pay to get a blue check mark for a sock puppet account run by a person or a bot account, or even a real account run by someone who's in cahoots with, with a government or a corporation or something, you're going to do it, right? And so this pay to play system um, that we see right now with the blue check marks and other check marks uh, in some ways benefits the the powerful actors. Um, it benefits the people that can pay to scale their programs. Same thing is true for the for the closing off of the Twitter API. It used to be that anyone could could access the API pretty easily. And then there was, you know, you had to register as a developer and now you've got to pay tens of thousands of dollars, like, you know, over $40,000 if you get enterprise access um, uh, to get that access. And so it means that state-based actors, corporate actors, people with lots of money and a lot of sophistication who can build actual, you know, potentially machine learning bots will be able to access these systems. The democratization problem of propaganda might go down a little bit, um, but we're going to see more sophistication and, and it's kind of playing into the hands of the powerful in many ways. Now, I have to admit that I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to WhatsApp. It is just something that is beyond my 45 years on this planet. But you and your team at the University of Texas at Austin have been working to understand the flow of propaganda on encrypted messaging apps like WhatsApp. What have mm -hmm. you learned in that time? Yeah, so uh, great question. For the last four years, we've had a project called the Encrypted Messaging Apps Project. Uh, it's a transnational project. So it's been focused on, I would say like 12 to 14 countries around the world. We've learned a lot. We've learned that uh, encryption and encrypted messaging apps are not a cure-all for the problems that we face in propaganda in places like India and Brazil, and even in the United States, there's already people working 
to build sophisticated propaganda campaigns in order to control people. They just look a lot different than they look on, say, more public social media platforms. Um, indeed, like, you know, the BJP, Narendra Modi's party in, in India, or uh, uh, Bolsonaro, the, the ex-president of Brazil, these folks built incredibly sophisticated mechanisms for spreading propaganda via WhatsApp, but they understood that they needed to leverage personal connections a lot of the time because the group sizes are smaller on WhatsApp and, and on many encrypted messaging apps. You tend to follow people you know, or friends of friends, or family. And so relational organizing becomes really important. We wrote a paper recently that people can check out for, I believe it was for New Media and Society or Social Media and Society, one of the academic journals on this stuff, where we talk about this idea of cascade logic. There's this idea on these on these chat apps that you need to seed and fertilize disinformation or propaganda in a in a big set of groups, and then you 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 seed it, and then you fertilize it to try to push it, and you try to get people to pick it up and spread it organically much more quickly than you would need to do on say Facebook or Twitter. Um, some of your listeners will 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 be familiar with the fact that WhatsApp has limited forwarding uh, on what on its channels, so you can't forward an, um, content an unlimited time to an unlimited amount of other channels. But uh, one of the things that we've argued is that in places like India and Brazil, where the BJP has built, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of groups. Um, it grandfathers in the people who are already powerful. They already have all the groups they need. They don't need to forward to a bunch of stuff. They just drop it in all their channels. And so, um, you know, if forwarding was the only issue, that would have dealt with the problem, but it's actually not. Uh, and so, you know, the issue of misinformation becomes a big one there. The other thing too, is that these spaces are really difficult for researchers to study, rightfully so. We want more privacy. Privacy is important. I believe in the power of encrypted messaging. I think that it, it can really help people, especially people that are living living in oppressive regimes. Um, but at the same time, we shouldn't think that we're just safe because we go to an encrypted space. We we, have, we still have to stay savvy. And because of that, my team has been working with Kiran Garamella at Rutgers. Uh, Kiran is, or Dr. Garamella is one of the people who's helped to build what's known as the WhatsApp monitor. Mm -hmm. uh, it worked in Brazil and India during those elections. And basically we, you get groups to buy in and, and we help monitor the content and figure out whether, you know, what kind of stuff spreading, not disinformation per se necessarily, but also, you know, clearly state-sponsored manipulation and these sorts of things. I'm much more concerned with the top-down state stuff than I am with like um, people spreading misinformation. That's just always been more of my beat. Yeah, what's happening in India was one of the more shocking things that I learned in this book. So uh, thank you for enlightening me on that one. Now, you sure. interviewed more than 100 people for this book from around the globe who yes. fall into one of four different categories, political campaign workers, technology industry experts, journalists, and automated political influencers. Why are automated political influencers the scariest amongst these four groups in your mind? <laughs> that's a good that's a good question so automated political influencers are basically like these folks that have an understanding of the internet many of them have worked as software engineers uh you know in different contexts or in, in their old lives or they still do um and they're particularly interesting and scary because they're able to leverage the internet in order to manipulate public opinion for their own means and ends absent any kind of checks and balances so Governments, when they participate in propaganda, they're having to constantly evade the people that are set up to, to watch them. So journalists, researchers like me, uh, and just regular people uh, who can have access to, say, FEC spending, uh, the, know about the consultants they're hiring, and kind of follow the money in order to track you know, potential bad stuff that's happening. That's not true across the board. Subcontractors don't have to be registered with the FEC, and so that creates a whole separate set of issues. Um, it means the contractors can hire people to do the dirty work. Uh, but in the context of these automated political influencers, they're oftentimes small scale folks who are able to generate a lot of content and a lot of noise in order to game public opinion. Many of them do what they do to make money. So they're monetizing their systems, um, claiming to make tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month by, you know, through artificial clicks, like selling bots, uh, ad you know, add pyramid schemes, basically. But many of them do what they do because they believe so closely in the politics that they're trying to spread. And so oftentimes, extremists from across the political spectrum 
are fall into this camp. And that means that there's those kinds of folks are spreading some of the most horrible hate and vitriol and manipulative troll oriented content that just like poisons our information ecosystem and makes people really, really upset. Um, and so, you know, that, that leads to, you know, my thinking that there has to be more, more control in the space on those kinds of folks. Now there are folks who do that, that are fighting for, for good, quote unquote, depending on what your definition of good is, they're fighting for human rights, they're fighting for democracy. And so, um, as with many things in this space, it's a double-edged sword and we have to think carefully about the regulations that we create because, you know, the dream of many people is to keep the internet a free and open democratic space where innovation is possible. And we're realizing we can't just have that because corporate actors, political actors have come in and controlled it. Um, but we still need to maintain aspects of democracy and human rights online. We need to support those sorts of things. And so one of the things I called for in my other book, the reality game is, you know, designing for human rights, designing our, our next wave of social media with democracy in mind and thinking through what that actually means rather than just designing these systems built for clicks and links and and eyeballs and manipulation. It's funny how the definition of good can be subjective, but then again, welcome <laughs> to 2023. Now, sure. uh, amongst those four groups that you interviewed, why are journalists uh, especially valuable for your understanding of political bots? Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, journalists are oftentimes uh, on the front lines fighting against political bots and the use of political bots. So journalists have, have been crucial uh, informants for me along the way, especially in global contexts where I am not a cultural native. Um, so, you know, when I've done research in places like Ecuador or Turkey or, or what have you, journalists have been the ones to say, hey, you need to look here, you need to talk to XYZ and help me with that snowball approach to like figuring out, you know, what what's going on. Also, though, uh, journalists are oftentimes the core targets of computational propaganda campaigns of political bot campaigns. So journalists often uh, are on the receiving end of this content uh, in two different ways. One, they're oftentimes harassed massively with amplified campaigns that come from bots, sock puppets, you know, and coordinated groups of real folks. And that leads to them not reporting on particular issues. We've seen this across the board in democracies in and in places like China, uh, uh, that journalists have been hugely targeted via these campaigns and have either left the reporting game entirely or stopped reporting on a particular story that got people the wrong people's attention. Um, simultaneously, journalists are intended many times uh, to be mechanisms for laundering bad quality content in the today's world with the 24-hour news cycle, all the pressures upon the journalistic sort of the, the institution of journalism, um, journalists rely a lot upon quantitative data on trends on social media to find breaking stories, to find interesting content. And, you know, if my book shows you nothing else, it's that that content can be massively gamed, particularly online polls, particularly, you know, um, likes, retweets, and trends. Uh, depending on the platform you're on, maybe not retweets, but messaging and trends. Uh, and so when journalists passively or unthinkably, unthinkingly regurgitate that content, they're playing into the hands of propagandists. And that's why I called this book Manufacturing Consensus. Manufacturing Consent, Herman and Chomsky's book, and, and the idea of manufacturing engineering of consent that came from Lippmann, these were ideas related to the modern broadcast media system and how it was controlled basically by powerful individuals and by others. My argument in manufacturing consensus is that social media is, is effectively quite controlled by powerful entities, individuals, and interests. And that journalists, because of that, have to be really careful not to be roped into that whole infrastructure. Uh, as Herman and Chomsky argue in their book, you know, um, broadcast media and major media are become effective mouthpieces for the state and for the one percent if they don't work very difficult, very very hard to not be that. And social media companies are in the same position oftentimes today. I have to admit, I've cringed many times when I'm reading an article and I see them cite a tweet from a random person that is clearly the most vitriolic thing being <laughs> said about an issue one way or the other. In part because it, you you wonder just how authentic that individual is versus it being something that's just supposed to get a rise out of people. Yeah. And that, that, that is such a good point. And it, and it, it points towards the need for 
better codes of ethics and journalism, better training practices across the board. I realize that a lot of small town papers and, and online sites might not have as many resources, but we need better resources for journalists because like, you know, that that practice in particular, but also a lot of other practices when it comes to, to leveraging social media information in reporting leads to a lot of perpetuation of, of garbage to society. And, and, and it degrades the trust in the institution, which is already a big problem. Completely agreed. By the same token, though, and this is something that I was unfamiliar with uh, before reading Manufacturing Consensus, journalists are trying to use bots in positive ways, too. How? Yeah, that's a really good point. So this gets to the point of the fact that not all bots are bad. Over the course of the last 10 years, I've talked to a lot of journalists who are iterating with bots, who are playing with bots in order to share news. So like early on, I talked to a journalist who told me about this idea of the information radiator, this idea that a bot could be used to message on a particularly data heavy story that a journalist wouldn't get a report on constantly because of you know funding constraints and, and requirements from their editor. And so he had set up bots that, for instance, tweeted out politician stances on gun control or how, how politicians were voting on marijuana legislation so that the public could see what their politician was doing in these spaces. Um, at places like the Associated Press, uh, you know, at, um, at uh, BuzzFeed, at a number of other organizations, we see journalists working with automation and AI a lot in order to do things that journalists don't have time to do, but we still need to do. So to scour data sets, of course, bots and AI are imperfect. We still need human oversight in these, these instances for exactly the reasons we've been discussing, right? Um, but but there's a lot of journalists out there who are using bots as uh, kind of prostheses to, for their reporting, as scaffolding for their reporting in ways that are really exciting. And, and it speaks to this idea that the RAND Corporation floated a while back, which is we can no longer continue to fight the firehose of falsehood with the squirt gun of truth. We've got to figure out how to leverage these kinds of tools for the benefit of democracy and human rights. We just don't want to do so uh, by creating more noise, more garbage. We've got to figure out how to refine our strategies, but also leverage these tools. That is a fantastic quote there. Now, I'm glad you mentioned BuzzFeed because a little while back, BuzzFeed laid off a bunch of humans to allow AI and bots to do more news writing. But is allowing bots to conduct news writing a step too far? Look, like bots will never be able to take the role of of human reporters in most aspects of journalism. Most aspects of most most elements of journalism, areas of journalism, whatever you want to call it, require a human touch. They require nuance. They require a sense of humor. They require uh, empathy, emotion, all of these sorts of things that you can't encode into AI yet. And hope and hopefully or arguably maybe never be able to code into AI. However, there are some circumstances in which bots can be useful. So, you know, if it's like for instance, there's a quake bot is an example of a bot that gets used to report on low level earthquakes um, on the West Coast. And it's like there's basically a format for reporting. There was a magnitude earthquake of this size. It was in this place. It happened in this or using bots to report upon sports scores at low at low level sports games. So like little league games, you know, this is what happened. Da, 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 da. Arguably, in those circumstances, it could leave more room for good quality investigative journalism, for good quality long-term reporting on stuff. So the point that I'm trying to make here is don't replace the journalists with bots. Use the bots to free up the journalists to do better work. Hmm. I've heard an interesting argument with regards to chat GPT uh, writing technical papers for students at the college level that, you know, if it's done right – it's allowing those students to free them, free their minds to involve themselves in either more creative print thinking, more problem solving thinking, or some combination of the hmm. two. Hmm. I haven't heard that argument, you know, like, um, but you're, so, so I need, I, I, I'm sorry to cut in here, but you are, no. uh, you're obviously a professor, professor at UT. So have, have you dealt with this problem just yet? And if, and when you do, if you haven't already, what is, what is the solution that you're thinking about here? You know, like <laughs> having ChatGPT write papers is, is an interesting idea, but the papers that I've seen from ChatGPT are pretty rote. They're pretty basic. They're routine. They don't they don't include the kinds of things that I'm hoping to see in terms of critical thinking that I hope from from my students. 
you know, the argument that you that you presented, it assumes that students are going to go off on their own and engage in creative pursuits and critical thinking on their own. The idea of school is to provide a space where students are forced to think about these things, where they're they're in, they're engaging with lots of different ideas. And um, I hate to say it, but like, you know, student, well, I'll say this, this students at the University of Texas are really smart. I've been blown away by them consistently again and again and again. But I don't have a whole lot of faith that students are going to go off and and do a lot of critical thinking on their own um, if they if if they're just using Chat GPT to write their essays. I think we got to get students to engage and write essays and do these kinds of things. And and there's already tools cropping up to track whether or not a paper was written by Chat GPT. So um, I'll be running those on my students' papers, and hopefully they don't use Chat GPT to try to cheat. Look, Sam, sometimes just kicking around the drag. That's creative thinking, man. Come on. Times here. Yeah, look, I'm not I'm not saying that students aren't creative, but uh, but like, you know, not every person is a self-starter. Not everyone is an independent thinker. And that's why education exists. It exists to help them become more critical, to become better critical thinkers, in my opinion. Well, it's a great point. And also that technical know-how is important for creative thinking too, because in problem solving, because you need to understand how stuff works to help it evolve. That's right. You can't fake a lot in a lot of these circumstances, you can't fake it. And if I had a dollar for every time I'd seen machines get things wrong over the last 10 years, and we're talking sophisticated digital bots, AI mm-hmm. programs, I'd be a very wealthy man. And so, you know, we shouldn't be relying solely upon machines now. There's uh, yet or ever, really. There's a reason for human oversight across the board in many of these cases. And and oftentimes we're a little too quick to replace human labor with machines uh, in cases where we would be way better served by investing in people. In discussing what makes social media so hospitable to propaganda, you cite University of Toronto political science professor Ronald Divert's three painful truths on social media. One, that they were built to invade users' privacy and profit off of that invasion. Two, that users are complicit in this process because we basically sign our rights away as soon as we sign up for that account. And the third being that social media is far from incompatible with authoritarianism. What do you mean by that last point? Or what did he mean by that last point with your interpretation of things? So, so Deber is one of the the, I think one of the greatest thinkers on the tech democracy space uh, or the tech and authoritarianism space, tech and governance, tech and politics. He runs something called the Citizen Lab out of University of Toronto, which I'd point people towards, if they want great resources. And that last thing means that it's possible to leverage social media to control people. That a lot of governments around the world, including many of the authoritarian governments, have figured out that social media is a magnificent tool for controlling the flow of information. Look at China's Great Firewall, uh, their creation of bespoke social media platforms that they can monitor, those sorts of things. But also in Western democracies, you can leverage social media to create noise, apathy, anger, in order to undermine democracy and institutions. And so it kind of goes both ways, like both for authoritarians focusing in country, but also for authoritarians attempting to spread their their belief system in uh, democracies. Uh, It's a workable system. You and your team have noticed several worrisome trends regarding global propaganda. Is there one that you consider to be the most concerning at this time? A big focus for everyone right now should be on China and the ways in which China is leveraging social media to effectively spread propaganda abroad. For a very long time, uh, you know, according to work from folks like Gary King and Jennifer Penn, um, the former at Harvard, the latter now at Stanford, there was this argument that you know China focused predominantly in state that they were using effusively positive pro-party messaging. Um, they leveraged a lot of citizen-led campaigns. They weren't leveraging as many bots. Yes, they were still doing some uh, quite a lot of this in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Tibet, but they weren't focusing their efforts to spread pro-Chinese propaganda as much across the world in the way that Russia does. Uh, and so now we see uh, China ramping up their efforts to do this. And those are the sorts of things that keep me up at night. China has a lot more people, a lot more in terms of people power. They have a lot of technological power. 
Um, and they are one of the most authoritarian countries in the world, according to rankings from folks like Freedom House uh, and Polity4, which do rankings of, of democracy versus authoritarianism. Um, and so, you know, we've got to be we've got to be thinking about this really carefully and, and asking ourselves questions about what this means for for the United States and for our democracy. Yeah, that social credit system is something straight out of Black Mirror. So now that we have uh, had an hour-long conversation that has probably convinced a few folks, myself included, to want to uh, go hide under a rock. And by the way, my (laughs) eight- and six-year-old kids aren't getting uh, phones or social media accounts until they're 40, or maybe I'm dead. (laughs) Uh, At the end of this book, you state that you remain hopeful. Why? The fact that we're here having this conversation is, is, is indication of the fact that people are paying a lot more attention now. 10 years ago, uh, even five years ago, it was a lot more difficult to get people to pay attention to this problem. Yeah, there's a lot of disagreement about disinformation and moderation of speech and stuff, but I think that's healthy. I think we should be having those kinds of discussions. You know, back in 2013, when I started this work, people weren't really. There was effusive positivity about social media's role in democracy. And I, I think that I think there was reasons for that. And I think there's still reasons for that today, but I think that we've got to be real with ourselves. We've got to notice the ways in which we're being controlled. Uh, We've got to make better systems and we've got to constantly be iterating on the systems that we have in order to uh, advance democracy, advance human rights, to create a better world. Um, And there's people doing that work today in higher numbers than ever before. People are more aware, my students are more aware um and and that excites me uh and so you know my phd advisor phil howard who i've collaborated a lot with on on work says always says he's a reluctant optimist in this space and uh you know i feel like i've taken that that on as well i'm a reluctant optimist i think that technology can do beautiful things i've seen it in my own life um uh uh, but we've just got to work work for that work hard He is Samuel Woolley. The new book is Manufacturing Consensus, Understanding Propaganda in the Era of Automation and Anonymity. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Sam, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for inciting this conversation and then helping to advance it as well. Thanks for having me, Trey. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus to the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. Talk to you next time on Books on Pod.